This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. Thanks again for joining us. I just had the pleasure of speaking with Marion Holmes Katz about her wonderful new book, Women in the Mosque, A History of Legal Thought and Social Practice, which was published with Columbia University Press in 2014. Recently, there have been various debates within the Muslim community over women's mosque attendance. While contemporary questions of modern society structure current conversations, this question, may a Muslim woman go to the mosque, is not a new one. In this great new book, Professor Katz traces the juristic debates around women's mosque attendance. She outlines the various arguments, caveats, and positions of legal scholars in the major schools of law and demonstrates that despite some differing opinions, there was generally a downward progression towards gendered exclusion in mosques. Variation in perspectives revolved around the types of activities women were engaged in at the mosque, the time of day, the permission of their husbands or guardians, attire, and the multitude of conditions that needed to be met. Later interpreters feared women's presence in the mosque because they argued it stirred sexual temptation. Katz pairs these legal discourses with evidence of women's social practice in the Middle East and North Africa from the earliest historical accounts through the Ottoman period. In our conversation, we discuss types of mosque activities, Mamluk Cairo, the Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem, the transmission of knowledge, European travelers' accounts of Muslim women, night prayers, mosque construction, debates about the mosque in Mecca, and modern developments in legal discussions during the 20th century. It was a great pleasure to speak with Dr. Katz about this wonderful book, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as well. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Welcome back to New Books in Islamic Studies. Today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Marion Katz about her wonderful new book, uh, Women in the Mosque, A History of Legal Thought and Social Practice, which was published with Columbia University Press uh, just recently in 2014. Morning, Marion. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, you've, you've written a, a wonderful book. Um, I think people in lots of fields, not only Islamic study, will be really interested in, in your findings. So thank you for, for writing a very uh, readable, <laughs> dense, and intelligent work. So thank you. Before we get into uh, the content of the book, um, generally we start with an introduction into how you got interested in Islamic studies. So could you tell us a little bit about um, how you came to the field, perhaps uh, influential mentors in terms of the types of content you're looking at or in your approach? Um, How did you end up where you are? Well, um, part of my interest in Islamic studies goes back to you know my my childhood and my upbringing. I was I was brought up by atheists who really assured me that religion was something that was probably going to die out in my lifetime. Uh, and you know, as I got a little older and you know sort of went to high school in and this is really going to date me, but in Reagan's America, I realized that this was not in fact the case. Um, and I became increasingly interested in this, you know, this phenomenon. Um, I went to college knowing that I wanted to study religion in some form and being a very sort of uh, methodical uh, 
kid at the time, I decided that what I needed to do was identify, you know, sort of the research language that would be most useful to me in that endeavor. So I decided before starting college that I wanted to study classical Arabic, uh, which I started as a freshman. And, you know, after I started Arabic, there was no no looking back. Uh, I just loved the language so much that uh, that really sort of sealed my fate. And then what, uh, how did you develop into graduate school? Where did you end up? Well, as it happened, um, my mentor as an undergraduate at Yale was um, Professor Wadad Al-Qadi, who ended up moving to the University of Chicago while I was still an undergraduate. Um, so I really followed her. Uh, <laughs> I, I knew that I, I wasn't through studying under her direction. Uh, and so... Uh, you know, I, I I pretty much chose my graduate school on that basis. And you've written a lot. This is uh, a, a book that's come after a great deal of scholarship um, in ritual studies, in legal studies. Could you talk a little bit about how this project began to emerge as a book, um, perhaps how it relates to your previous scholarship Okay, so I think there are really three elements to the sort of prehistory of this project. Um, one of them is personal, I would say. I mean, you know, I, I'm not Muslim. I, I practice Judaism, although not as observantly as some. But, um, you know, the, the whole question of sort of, uh, you know, should men and women be separated by a barrier? Not really a lively current question in the form of, of Judaism that I personally partake of, but as a graduate student, that was a lively question because students of various religious movements shared space and had to negotiate things like that. Um, and, and, you know, sort of then as, as a young academic, you know, one of the places that I taught the synagogue that was available was uh, was Orthodox, and there was you know sort of separate seating. And I remember once going on a, on a Friday night and finding I was alone in the women's section and having the rabbi come and say, "Well, you know, you're very welcome, but you know, in fact, you're not going to, you know, you, you will in fact be alone." Uh, uh, so you know, th- there was a certain element of you know just sort of being interested in how people, you know. People use religious space and sort of who uses it for what, when, um, was something that I, you know, sort of had in the back of my mind as a topic that I found intriguing. Um, Another thing that led me to this project was a previous book that was on the celebration of the Prophet Muhammad's birthday, the Maulid. And... um, you know, when you look and, you know, this isn't, you know, sort of some major uh, uh, theme in the pre-existing secondary literature, but one of the claims that one often encountered if you started looking around and sort of, um, you know, sort of looking for explanations that had been advanced about the popularity of that kind of ritual practice among women, which, you know, it's, it's, it's a documented fact that you know, Melvin celebrations seem to have caught on among women quite, uh, you know, quite early on and quite pervasively. Uh, and one of the explanations that you find is, well, women were excluded from mosques. And therefore, you know, when we try to explain uh, why it is that, you know, and, and implicitly the idea is you sort of why women resorted to as if, you know, sort of there's this implicit assumption that it is a second choice, <laughs> um, uh, it, you know, that th- that can be explained with reference to the idea that, you know, sort of women didn't have access to mosques and that that shaped the kind of ritual practice that they could pursue. And, um, you know, questions about uh, you know, sort of gender and ritual practice also raised questions about who was exposed to what in terms of knowledge, in terms of norms, in terms of narratives. 
you know, sort of what venues do we imagine people sitting in um, and hearing things or, you know, seeing other people do things or uh, whatever. And so, you know, this whole question of the degree to which uh, in various different times and places we should envision women as um, a having their choices of ritual practices and venues being dictated by certain forms of exclusion that implicitly were, you know, sort of initiated by men. Uh, the question of, you know, like how much of the range of religious teachings and practices that we know about through um, textual sources for the pre-modern period, if we think that the you know, the delivery system for many non-scholarly practicing Muslims in the past would have been oral delivery in contexts like sermons, who do we picture being there, right? Um, so, you know, that, that project that focused on uh, on the Mawlid really, you know, sort of placed some questions in the back of my mind about... Uh, you know, sort of to, to, to what extent the widespread assumption that women were excluded from mosques and that that, you know, supposed fact could be used to explain other things about women's choices uh, or, or default practices, uh, religiously speaking, um, you know, that was something that I, I wanted to look into. Um, another thing that led me into the book was that um, way back 10 years ago, um, I took part in um, in a little conference that it was at Cardozo Law School um, that, uh, that oh God, I think it was Law Reason... Law, Tradition, and Reason. Um, and the paper that I gave for that looked at a fatwa by Ibn Hajar al-Haytami. And it was, um, I now realize, uh, something that I think was dealing with the event that's covered uh, in Mecca, that's covered in, uh, what is it, uh, chapter three of this book. Um, but he makes all these really interesting arguments about women's presence in mosques. And, um, you know, I knew after writing about that specific fatwa that, you know, th there must be, there must be a bigger story there. <laughs> uh, and so I, I definitely had it in the back of my mind that, you know, if it were ever possible to pursue that, uh, that was definitely something that was on my agenda. Now you, uh, Frame this in segments. Each chapter kind of does a different thing. And the, the first chapter um, focuses on the primary question of may Muslim women go to the mosque, basically. Um, perhaps you could begin by telling us a little bit about this idea of mosque usage. Um, because in this question, even though it seems very, fairly vague, um, is usually talking about more specific things. So – what do scholars usually mean when they're thinking about mosque usage, mosque attendance, um, and and a little bit about how mosques were used in pre-modern times? Okay, well, I mean, with respect to the first chapter, I think one thing that's actually sort of interesting about the way that um, the authors of these legal texts configure their discussions is that they're not actually that interested in the concrete reasons why a person would go to the mosque. That is, often you find that material in the section of a legal manual that deals with congregational prayer, and therefore implicitly, you know, one could infer that that's what they think, that, you know, that's why they think people would go to the mosque, or at least should go to the mosque. Um, but one pervasive assumption of the legal manuals is that, you know, the, the, at, at some very basic level, the behavior that we're dealing with when, when we debate that question is khuruj, it's going out. So in, in a way, they're sort of uh, notionally locating themselves at the door of the marital re residence rather than at the door of the mosque. Um, 
they're interested in, you know, sort of what is or isn't a good reason for a woman to leave her home and appear in public. So there's, you know, it's not that they don't at all deal with the question of what a woman actually does when she arrives, if they proceed to contemplate the scenario of her actually going. I mean, you know, there there are discussions of the relative religious merit of, of uh, prayers performed in different locations, for instance, or questions about, you know, sort of, you know, behavior within the mosque. Does it involve ikhtilats? Does it involve, you know, like mixing with men? Um, but those things, frankly, tend to come up, uh, you know, particularly the questions about sort of propriety and what actually happens during the mosque. Those it, it tend to come up more in the other genres that are discussed a little more in chapter two, like treatises that are, um, you know, inveighing against bida or, 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 or religious innovations. So one thing that I th- thought was actually interesting was, you know, the, the, the almost single-minded focus on the part of most of the legal manuals, not on the actual, you know, sort of activities um, that would happen if a woman, woman did go to the mosque, but around this, this sort of structural thing that they don't, you know, completely examine, which is that, you know, like the question is, should the woman go out to do it in the first place? Yeah, and so just so listeners can get a feeling of how you uh, approach the chapter, you look at the major schools of, of law and their various kind of trajectories over time. Um, but in general, this idea of the... Uh, that women's mosque attendance is also tied uh, very closely to their husbands or guardians' uh, opinions and thoughts. Um, where where did legal scholars end up? Uh, ultimately, this is a question of did women have the right to attend the mosque, uh, period. So what, what did people say about this? Well, that's actually interesting because um, the question of whether a woman should – go to the mosque or, you know, sort of where that activity falls on the, you know, sort of five-level five scale of legal normativity, you know, like, is it forbidden? Is it repugnant? Is it neutral? Is it meritorious? Is it, is it obligatory? The question of that and the question of, okay, if we feel either slightly or absolutely negative about a woman attending who, if anyone, has the authority to forbid her. Those are actually somewhat separate questions. So, I mean, it's possible for someone to say either, I really think that a woman shouldn't go, but there are scenarios where no one can tell her not to, or to say, I really think that a woman should be allowed, but... um, there is someone who, despite that, does have the authority to tell her not to. So, um, you know, an example of, um, you know, the sort of the, the, the previous case would be, say, you know, Ibn Rush the Elder, who, you know, has a lot of reservations about mo- many women, all but sort of the, the, the oldest subcategory, um, going to the mosque, but when he's trying to, you know, think about, well, what was it that, you know, say Malik was really talking about when he, he, he implicitly cited the Quran, the, the prophetic Hadith and said that, you know, women shouldn't be prevented from going to the mosque. Um, one of the ideas that comes up is, well, you know, that's a general public prohibition, right? So, I mean, you know, like that, that, that the authorities can't, prohibit a woman going from the mosque, but, you know, it, it, it would be her husband or her guardian if, if she has one. The, the opposite of that would be um, the Maliki author whose work figures so centrally in um, the third chapter who uh, 
who, who is very, you know, sort of negative about the idea that a, you know, sort of women's going to the mosque has a an inherently negative valence. He doesn't believe that. He thinks that women should be allowed to go to the mosque, and he's very negative about the idea of the authorities preventing women from going to the mosque. But, you know, he's very, very clear about the fact that if the mosque was empty of women because their husbands were forgiving them, he would be totally okay with that because that's the proper authority structure of, you know, marriage and of the family. So, I mean, you know, like in, in a lot of ways, those two things maybe aren't opposites, but similar to each other, but the emphasis is pretty different. Um, yeah. I'm not sure if I completely answered. No, that's great. Um, and you, you kind of pointed to another question that seems to arise for all these legal scholars despite their school um, is how we categorize women. Um, they, they don't take this in a monolithic way and one of the, one of the factors that seems to be determined in how they position their, themselves is, is age. So can you talk a little bit about how um, age, uh, older and younger women um, are thought about in these legal texts? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I found really um, sort of surprising about the material that is relevant to this question, in particularly in, you know, sort of the earliest um, legal sources or the opinions that are attributed to, you know, really early authorities, is the degree to which, um, you know, sort of should a woman go to the mosque or may a woman go to the mosque isn't really a well-formed question. In other words, uh, sometimes the question is itself framed in a way that differentiates among different categories of women whose existence and relevance isn't examined or problematized. It's just asserted uh, and implied to be a shared understanding. Uh, um, Or Sometimes somebody asks about women, uh, you know, in, in one of these early sources, and the response is then modulated in terms of this, you know, sort of terminology of age cohorts, right? Sometimes the distinction might not be, uh, you know, exclusively according to age. So, for instance, you know, a very early um, Hijazi scholar is asked, you know, clearly sort of... Um, as part of a reflection on, you know, sort of whether the Quranic statement that when you hear the you know, the call to prayer on Friday, you should go, um, d- does that include women? Are women among the addressees? And, you know, this early Meccan scholar um, differentiates in his answer between women who will go out during the daytime and women who don't, right? Um, and I think, you know, sort of bringing other sources to bear on that, that that reflects um I believe was apparently an actual hijazi social practice of, you know, women with certain claims to status uh, secluding themselves during the daylight hours as a modesty practice, as a sort of probably status enhancing uh, modesty practice. But so, you know, the, the, the question with respect to all of these age distinctions and, and, and you know, I, I should say, um, this probably does not come as a surprise, but the distinction is between greater restrictions on the mobility and visibility of the sort of nubile, marriageable young woman and, and loosening, uh, you know, sort of loosening restrictions, you know, sort of more, um, more acceptance of mobility and visibility and interaction with men on the part of more mature or indeed elderly women. And, you know, on the face, on the at first blush, this, this all may not be shocking. And I, I, I think it's natural to read it in the light of what we know about later Islamic legal discourses, which is, you know, by say, the 11th, certainly the 12th century, um, this is very explicitly related to the idea of, you know, sort of fitna, the idea of sexual temptation and sexual allure, and the idea that women are sort of 
highly erotically volatile and 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 you know sort of visually appealing uh, when they're young, and that that declines, and 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 that um, you know sort of appropriate worries about the mayhem that may result um, from their activities uh, subsides at a certain point because of you know, sort of this this focus on erotic volatility. And, you know, that's definitely one way of reading this. On the other hand, I think that we shouldn't necessarily read the early sources by projecting back what we know about later sources and, and, and you know, the opinions of the people who wrote them. I think that there are other ways to read the earlier sources, um, Partially in the sense that, you know, as I looked at the things that were being said (coughs) about, you know, sort of the mature woman who, you know, the older woman, if we want to be, you know, sort of not prejudge the question of how old she really is, um, who might have more latitude to go to the mosque or other, you know, sort of more public activities like bargaining in the marketplace or going to Mecca, you know, walking to Mecca, which is a scenario that comes up. Um, it's not, you know, some of the time it seems as if, A, based on the kind of, uh, of uh, activities that are mentioned, that this is a woman who's still re- relatively vigorous. And in other contexts, it seems that sometimes maybe we're just talking about the woman who has passed her prime reproductive years. And that's a little different from what you get in the later sources where the idea is, you know, that the woman who is partially or completely, um, you know, sort of unburdened of the, uh, you know, sort of legal structures that are associated with the concern about fitna is really, you know, the, the, the crone, the hag, the woman who is beyond all rational association with marriage or sex, uh, the woman who, and you know, like once you get to some of the later Hanafi sources, you, you really have language that's equivalent with, to the woman with one foot in the grave, right? Um, and I think that's a little different from what's going on in the early sources, and that if we read those without uh, assumptions that are informed by the later sources, that you can really see it as, um, you know, sort of a vision of the female life cycle that's not necessarily driven by the idea of, you know, exclusively of volatile sexual- sexuality, but that's more driven by the idea that there are life phases that have different priorities and roles that are associated with them. And that maybe we don't have to assume that, um, you know, that, 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 you know, what's driving all of this is uh, concerns about sexuality, um, concerns about, say, marriageability or, you know, sort of uh, what kinds of roles are, are associated uh, with a young woman as opposed to a matron. Um, you know, I, I think that those are reasonable candidates for what might be going on in the minds of early authors to, to whose, you know, who didn't elaborate on their uh, opinions quite to the same extent as some of our later, uh, some of our later thinkers. Um, you know, I, I do want to emphasize that in looking, I hope so carefully at the, you know, sort of the life cycle terminology and the forms of differentiation among women that come up in these texts. I'm not really trying to argue that, you know, sort of any, that these ways of classifying women and, and distinguishing among them are, you know, sort of non-essentialistic and non-monolithic and therefore inherently liberatory. I mean, there are a lot of ways that all of this is, constraining different people in different ways. And, you know, this is not so true on this specific issue, but, I mean, in a lot of areas you can say this is true of the way these sources are talking about men as well. Um, You know, it's not necessarily something that sort of resolves people's concerns about, you know, limitations that are at least, you know, sort of ideally or rhetorically being placed on women, uh, to just say, oh, well, you know, like, woman wasn't a monolithic category. On the other hand, I do think that 
it really should give us food for thought. There's so much of the secondary literature on, you know, gender in is, and Islamic law is, is just completely generated by questions of the form, you know, what do these texts say about women or what could women or, you know, something like that. And, you know, just sort of not necessarily, uh, directly addressing the fact that, um, for many of the, you know, for many of our sources, those questions would have to be, you know, sort of structurally modified in order to rep- to reflect the fact that they, they just aren't treating women as, uh, you know, like not even to mention, obviously, different unfree statuses, which don't co- come up so much uh, with respect to this specific legal question. But, um, you know, I do think that the sort of, the texture of these discussions has a lot to do with the way that the scholars are wielding this terminology and the ways that they see, you know, sort of different women or the same women at different points in her, you know, biological, social, reproductive, familial life as having different roles. I think that's a really important thing that's going on in these texts. And through, throughout, uh, especially this chapter, you, you talk very explicitly about what these legal texts actually are able to tell us. And uh, so be, uh, people who actually take a look at the book will certainly benefit from that. In the second chapter, you, you move away from these legal texts and look at a different set of sources um, in order to try to restructure kind of the social lives of these people and what, what women were actually up to. Um, and you do this, uh, I think, in a very interesting way. You kind of take an episodic look at different uh, places and periods. Um, you begin in Iraq um, with some of the earliest sources we have. Can you tell us uh, what women are up to during this period from the sources you're looking at? Well, I mean, I think one of the key questions uh, when we're looking at um, – Legal discourses is sort of the question of which comes first, the chicken or the egg. In other words, you know, sort of, do we see legal discourses as being responses to social practices? Uh, and if so, do they reflect them or, you know, sort of, in, you know, like engage with them in ways that, that, you know, sort of, you know, sort of maybe efforts to control or negate them? Or do we see, you know, sort of, these normative discourses as shaping the practices of at least some people, at least some portion of the minority of the population that at that point is Muslim, right? Uh, Being sort of shaped by, say, you know, initially what companions of the prophet uh, teach and so forth. And so, you know, what I was trying to do in the second portion of the book is to make non-legal sources speak to the legal sources. Um, that's difficult to do for, for, for a number of reasons. Um, one is that, you know, the, the non-legal sources aren't just sort of straightforwardly non-normative or, or you know, like they're not documentary sources, right, for, for this subject, for sure. Um, so, you know, sort of they have agendas and conventions uh, of, of their own. Um, another thing that was difficult was that it can be hard to control for, you know, sort of for time and place and, and, you know, sort of find data that sort of directly, uh, uh, you know, sort of apples to apples, uh, from, from these two categories. One of the things that I thought was interesting, I mean, you know, raise the question about early Iraq is that to the extent the fragmentary data that I was able to come up with uh, gives a picture of actual practice, it's not one that really corresponds to the image that we would get from looking at the opinions that are attributed to early uh, Iraqi authorities on a legal uh, uh, level. Uh, in other words, that if you juxtapose the two and give a certain amount of credence to each of them, and I mean, obviously, there's a discussion one could have around that, but I mean, the inference that one might draw is less that 
law-described and formalized practice or that practice resulted from adherence to the law than an image of, um, you know, the people who at least retrospectively are taken as legal authorities sort of, uh, you know, protesting with a relatively limited effect against what seemed to be, you know, sort of relatively freewheeling practices in this area. In other words, you can place quite a few women in mosques doing quite a few things, um, which is not what you would really uh, necessarily expect from, you know, sort of looking at the legal sources and, and thinking of them either as, you know, sort of descriptions of or prescriptions for behavior. Some of these other um, <coughs> snippets that you're looking at um, are taking on this debate in, in different ways. So in um, Spain and North Africa, we have uh, mosque construction, debates about where women are positioned in these new institutions uh, shaping the debate. What, what are some of the concerns about women's presence in the mosque that are going on in this conversation? Well, I think one of the things that's interesting about the Maliki discussion is um, that, you know, in at least some cases, you get a bit of a tension between, on the one hand, the, the idea that sort of architecturally distinct space that would be visually separate for women in mosques is a good thing that, you know, sort of has a long heritage um, in either Maliki areas or, or in some cases areas that would later be predominantly Maliki. Um, but on the other hand, there's also, in, at least occasionally, a little bit of tension about, well, you know, is this really okay? You know, like it could be sort of an innovation either because, uh you know, it wasn't what ex it existed in the specific mosque up to this point, or, um, you know, ultimately because it's not really something that is textually prescribed. I mean, I think one thing that is sort of interesting is the greater degree to which the construction of architecturally um, dedicated space for women's congregational prayer is something that's visible in the sources and it's, it's visible in sources of different genres, um, you know, uh, in, in the sources for Spain and North Africa. And I think that it's possible that that just reflects, you know, like actual historical practice that, you know, sort of that was more of a thing in those regions. Um, I'm not quite sure why else that would be, um, but it does seem to be a pattern. In another section of this chapter, you look at um, Mamluk Cairo and um, women's participation in mosque activities there, um, but also pair them with other types of uh, religious activity, I guess we can say. So, what, what were women doing in the mosque? What were they doing elsewhere? How do people feel about this? Yeah, so, I mean, Mamel Cairo is obviously one of the better documented times and places for the pre-Ottoman uh, Middle East. And so, you know, to a certain extent, I think it's possible to say things about it that you can't say about, you know, earlier uh, times or different places. One thing, and, and you know, like one of the main sources for that section is one that's very well known in the, you know, in the Islamic studies community. It's Ibn al-Hajj and his, it's Madha. It's sometimes hard to tell. I mean, if you're reading Ibn al-Hajj, you would get the impression that there were a lot of women in a lot of mosques doing a lot of things and that most of the things that the women were doing were objectionable by the standards of Ibn al-Hajj. So you, you get sort of 
relatively brief and mildly disapproving, but overall rather perfunctory um, mention of women being in the mosque for um, congregational prayers. And it's not clear whether he mentions that particular practice in such a perfunctory, you know, comparatively perfunctory manner because it was a relatively sort of quantitatively modest phenomenon? Or is it because Ibn al-Hajj is writing a polemic and he devotes his energy and his space to issues that he considers to be genuinely problematic and that of the different ways that women are, are, are present in the mosque, that one was really not as problematic. Uh, he might not have particularly liked it, um, but there was less to get genuinely upset about it from, from his point of view. So, I mean, it's difficult to tell. It's difficult, uh, you know, even if, you know, as in this case, you have the same author uh, rather unusually, you know, rather than having to sort of engage in a bunch of, uh, you know, sort of bricolage, bringing together tidbits from different sources. Uh, in the case of Ibn al-Hajj, you can sort of have one person's view of a sort of multifaceted array of different activities that people, including women, are engaging in in mosques. So you could say, okay, at least, you know, at least we're comparing apples with apples. So, I don't know. I mean, on the one hand, so you you have him talking about that, and it seems relatively small, maybe just because he's not un, equally hot under the collar about this as he is about some other things. Then, you know, you, um, you have this picture of the mosque as a sort of teeming, multi-purpose uh, public space where people are doing things like you know, hanging around, arguing while waiting for their for their legal cases to 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 be heard, or um, you know, hanging around, uh, you know, sort of trying to tr- trying to sell the yarn that you, you've spun, or um, that you know there are these great festivals that are that are attended by vast throngs of people and, you know, that he sees as being normatively problematic and, 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 you know, sort of out of control, uh, in a number of ways. Um, the other thing that I think is interesting about the case of Mamluk Cairo is sort of the, the, the pre-existing and I think well-founded consensus, which is also, you know, in part based on the testimony of Ibn al-Hajj of the just vast, um, participation of women in uh, various ritualized and religious and social activities in graveyards, right? And um, it's really hard to know. I mean, I am not completely convinced by the sort of conventional explanation that, um, you know, sort of women did this because those spaces weren't very controllable, right? And, you know, th- th- that may be true in some ways. Obviously, you know, sort of going out to the Qarafa is, for many people, you know, sort of a real outing, and, you know, Ibn al-Hajj goes into detail about, you know, women sort of getting felt up by the donkey driver and stuff like that. Uh, obviously, you know, th- th- there are, you know... Th- there are potentialities uh, there to some extent. But on the other hand, you know, this is also a place that's full of fully staffed religious institutions of various kinds. It's not as if it's some kind of wasteland um, that's devoid of, you know, sort of agents of normative order of various kinds, nor does it seem to be true that, you know, sort of mosques that are in town um, are completely controlled by, you know, sort of under control by the standards that, and, you know, Ibn al-Hajj is, is a little weird. Um, but, I mean, you know, it, it does seem that particularly on occasions that, you know, sort of were the focus of a lot of popular devotion, it was almost equally po- possible for, you know, for the scene to be rather wild uh, in a mosque 
in town. So, like, I'm not sure that we can necessarily see women's choices as being sort of defaults that they resorted to because their uh, physical presence and their religious attention migrated to the margins and the interstices of male normative control. I think we have to attribute some of the distribution of women's religious activities to, you know, sort of what what their interests and objectives as 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 women and and as Muslims were. I mean, you know, sort of the ways in which, say, their activities in graveyards might have reflected their, you know, sort of cultivation of family ties that included both the living and the, and the dead and, you know, sort of their concerns about family and life cycle and so forth. I think we, we need to take that into uh, um, account as well. The legal literature, like the, the legal manuals, you know, maybe it's just a convention. Uh, they tend to really address the question of can a woman go to the mosque or should a woman go to the mosque? Um, and they, you know, sort of the implicit model is that going to the mosque is a female objective and the possibility of controlling or denying that desire is a male prerogative. Um, and so it doesn't really, the legal literature is not, other than sometimes raising the question of comparative merit of uh, acts of prayer it doesn't really, you know, sort of raise for us the question of, like, going to the mosque or what, and, you know, sort of why would a woman prefer one of any of the given options, right? Mm. Um, so I think Mamluk Cairo is sort of an interesting uh, context for asking that question. Yeah. You give us a, a few other examples in this chapter, um, which we won't have time to cover, but... Uh, the section you have on kind of the, the Ottoman period I think is really interesting because you're looking at uh, European traveler accounts. So what, what did uh, non-Muslim sources uh, tell us about women's activity in the mosque? Well, um, I mean, I, th- I think that there are several ways in which the, the, the traveler's accounts um, from the Ottoman period are interesting. I mean, obviously – this is one of the primary areas of the book where, you know, I'm just very upfront about the fact that my conclusions are provisional. Um, Information about women's presence or absence uh, uh, in or from mosques is sort of everywhere and nowhere. Uh, The reason that I ventured to do it was because unlike a lot of areas where, um, you know, sort of, Outsider testimonies, anecdotal outsider testimonies of that kind could just be, you know, are likely to be completely rendered obsolete by information from the Ottoman archives. This is the kind of thing that's really unlikely to have, you know, women's attendance at mosques is unlikely to have generated any sort of systematic documentation that, you know, sort of could, could, could give us a I suspect that could give us a comprehensive view. Maybe an Ottomanist will later prove me wrong on this, and that, that would be fascinating. Um, but uh, so, you know, I, I thought it was interesting looking at the um, at the travelers' accounts for several reasons. One is that. Um, I thought that there was a really interesting relationship between the sort of the ideological use to which the question of women's presence in mosques was put uh, and the, um, you know, sort of concrete testimony that, that, that various travelers gave. So on the one hand, the travelers reports, some travelers reports are the locus of like one of the most sort of pervasive and long lasting tropes about gender and Islam in the West uh, that I have encountered. In other words, it's this sort of dyad of 
women don't go to the mosque and it's because Muslims think, Muslims think that women don't have souls or some, you know, a variation of that is because, you know, well, they'll go to a different place in heaven than men or something like that. Um, and, you know, so on the one hand, the travelers reports are, um, you know, sort of, as a genre, very closely related to that, and that, that becomes a real factor. I mean, um, you, um, you know, you, you, th- there's this great um, anecdote from Mohammed Abdu where, you know, he, he, he's hosting a European vi- visitor at Al-Azhar, and the European sees a, a woman walking past, you know, in this mosque. And he's like, oh, my God, you know, there's a woman here. And Muhammad Abdu sort of says, um, yeah, <laughs> you know, like, why is this interesting? And the European tells Abdu, you know, which is, which is sort of surreal in itself. Well, you know, like everyone knows that this doesn't happen, right? Um, and, and so, you know, that's something for Abdu where he says, well, you know, like, come on guys, we, we really have to do something about this. Um, both as a perception. And I think at least, you know, for some of, uh, at least somewhat later for, for Muslim reformers, it, be, it becomes a real issue to do something about it substantively. Um, so, I mean, I, I found that that component really interesting, but I also thought in terms of what the, um, Traveler's narrative said, I thought it was interesting, there seems to be change over time with sort of, there appears to be a dwindling of women's presence in mosques. There also seems to be a pattern of, you know, sort of the idea that maybe women could be in mosques and that mosques weren't male space in some kind of monolithic, static uh, sense, but that of mosque space being used by women sometimes in very, you know, sort of routine, intimate ways outside of times of formal uh, congregational prayer, which I think is an interesting thing um, to think about of, of these sort of temporal um, rhythms as being relevant to the way that we uh, think about mosque space and, 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 you know, and the gendering of space in general. Now, the third chapter focuses on um, a specific case study of sorts um, in 16th century Mecca. So here in 1530, there's a policy shift at the mosque in Mecca, um, which sparks a a very large debate with very accessible and interesting sources. So can you tell us the story behind this and and, uh, give us a sense of what it reveals to us in terms of these debates around the women's role in the mosque? Yeah, so, I mean, one of the things that is um, interesting and, you know, like, maybe problematic, but I'll just put it out there about the, the, about the project as a whole, is that, you know, there are projects that you come to because there's a corpus, right? Because there's a body of material that you think is rich and important. And, you know, maybe you start with that corpus and you decide, you know, sort of what's the question that this best illuminates, right? In this case, you know, one of the things that makes this such a large baggy book is that I really came with a question that I wanted to answer, um, that the sources aren't necessarily overwhelmingly interested in answering, right? Um, Which resulted in consulting a lot of sources and bringing together, you know, sort of small pieces of information um, from a lot of different places in order to attempt to create a sort of bigger mosaic that even if it's, you know, sort of, uh, you know, hard to put together all the, Details that maybe on a macro level um, one can see, you know, sort of coherence uh, and, and, and patterns over time. And in this particular case, this is something where I got to turn that around, right? That um, it's a case where, and, and, you know, it really brought me back to one of the things that had, um, you know, sort of planted the seed for the project in the first place, which was this fatwa by Ibn Hajar al-Haytami, um, 
you know, that, that, that I had looked at several years before where I really thought, what is going on here? That, you know, the question, which seems a little incoherent, but, you know, a little bit garbled, uh, that, um, to me is answering seems to imply that, you know, sort of what's being proposed is that women just get thrown out of, you know, excluded from the sacred mosque at Mecca, which seems as if, you know, like if, if that had ever happened in absolute terms, you would have thought it would have been, you know, like a vast controversy. Like, how could that possibly have happened? <clears throat> so, you know, I knew that I was on the lookout for something in that time and place, right? Um, so what, what the, the origin of that chapter is that, you know, when I was looking, reading through a huge uh, um, index, uh, you know, uh, of, uh, of manuscripts, I found this title that, that, that you know, is, is incredibly generic and not very interesting sounding, <laughs> um, about you know that, that, that implies that the work is about people women circumambulating the Kaaba after the evening prayer, which itself does not seem um, you know like necessarily spellbinding, uh, but um, it, it made me think. Wait, you know, like you know, right time, right place, right general question. Um, you know, could could this have could this relate to this? You know, whatever it is that Al Haytami is, is responding to, something happened. Could could this be something? So I was really shocked when I actually, you know, when I went to Darul Qutb and you know I requested that manuscript, and I guess I hadn't looked at the number of folios, but like when they gave it to me, and I realized just from the weight of the microfilm that oh my god, this thing is huge. Um, it turned out to be this really long, passionate work, and obviously. There are some ways in which the issue, um, so the the precise issue turned out to be, and this sort of resolves the, you know, or at least partially resolves the question of, you know, like was this not preventing, you know, women from completing their Hajj pilgrimages or whatever? Uh, um, that what was at stake was excluding women from the mosque from after the last prayer in the evening until right before the dawn prayer the following day. So, I mean, it was, you know, just sort of the heart of the night um, that women would have been excluded. And, you know, it seems to have been uh, a a short-lived initiative um, and one that, you know, sort of really did not long survive critical scrutiny. or, or, or the social pressures that that sort of resulted from 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 attempting to to execute it, um, but you know, despite the fact that there that there are things that are obviously very specific about the mosque at Mecca, and that the question of circumambulation of the Kaaba obviously doesn't apply to other mosques. Um, the author of this manuscript, who is a, a Maliki called Ibn Abd al Ghaffar. He really, um, you know, he takes it as an opportunity to really go into what I think is unprecedented depth on the whole question of women's access to mosques. Um, and I think that, you know, one of the things that's really interesting about it, and, and you know, I, I think there may be people who would disagree, but I mean... I think that there's a sense in which, like, obviously he does not have a concept of gender in, you know, sort of the, the, the modern sense. But there is a very concrete way in which, for him, this is about women and the treatment of women. Um, and, you know, he, he goes as far as to accuse his opponents, in, in other words, those who supported this measure limiting women's access, uh, you know, it, you know, for certain hours of the night, he, he goes so far as to accuse them of really not liking women very much. Um, and, you know, the, the, the theme of, uh, you know, sort of the, the theme of the treatment of, of gender starts as early as the hamdala, the, the praise of God, um, that, you know, that, that conventionally opens any, uh, you know, any Muslim 
work of, of, of literature, where he basically starts out by praising God, who, you know, sort of made the Kaaba a resort uh, for everyone, you know, including men and women and free people and slaves, you know, th- this whole question. And one of the things, w- one of his themes, which I found completely fascinating in view of the legal discussions that in so many ways had revolved around the question of, you know, distinctions of, among women, either in terms of age cohorts, particularly in the early sources, or in terms of when you're looking at um, somewhat later sources that are particularly associated with, uh, you know, scholars who uh, specialize in Hadith or, or jurists who are, who are also muhaddathun. Uh, you, you have distinctions being made among women according to their, you know, the, their behavior and, 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 you know, sort of their, their dress and comportment. Um, and one of the, the, the you know, the, the themes that comes up in this really passionate and sustained polemic against this uh, temporary limitation of women's as- access to the mosque is he coins, as far as I can tell, coins this term ta'mim, generalization, which is generalizing to all women um, the strictures that should rightly only apply to some of them, right? Um, And I find that really fascinating, you know, that he is essentially um, making explicit the question of Women are whether women are a monolithic category, and his answer is really no. Uh, and in that case, um, the implications of it are pretty concrete. That you know he really believes that you can't just you know sort of impose um, limitations on all women as a group without you know without proper distinctions among them. Um, so that was something that I really found. Um, you know, sort of qu- quite compelling. In the final chapter, you you look at modern developments in these legal discussions, uh, primarily the 20th century. Do we find new positions? Are there shifting attitudes towards women's mosque, mosque access during this period? Or what, what are people saying about it during this time? Well, one of the things I found most um, interesting about this is, you know, I think that, um, you know, a lot of people would be able to say, even off the top of their heads, that, you know, yeah, when you get to, say, um, the turn of the 20th century, that, that, that you have really influential voices being raised in places like Egypt and Syria uh, by Muslim reformers um, that are much more affirmative in terms of women's mosque attendance, right? And... Um, one of the things that I found very interesting when I started looking at those sources is that that um, more affirmative at- attitude is in some ways extremely double-edged. And I would say that that's true. I found that to be too, true in two respects. One is that, you know, whereas one of my main findings for the earlier periods that I surveyed was that it's not really that helpful to think of women's mosque attendance in terms of, you know, sort of simply asking whether women were in mosques at the same times and for the same purposes as men. That, like, if you really want to find women's mosque attendance, you're going to find it by being a little more flexible and being much more serious about the possibility that women had their own timing, their own objectives, their own activities, um, that, that, that they preferred. And um, so, for instance, you know, like in the, in the case of 16th century Mecca, um, you know, post-childbirth rituals seem to have been a huge thing <coughs> for Meccan women. And Thursday evenings, as opposed to, like, Fridays in the middle of the day, seem to have been sort of the weekly prime time for women's attendance. So one thing that seems to happen with some of these... Um, Reforming forces, people like Muhammad Abdul Rashid Rida, uh, Jamal al-Din al-Qasimi, is that on the one hand, they're, they're quite 
you know, open. To, you know, they're quite enthusiastic about the the idea of women coming to congregational prayers as as compared to their predecessors historically. But they're also quite interested in suppressing the kinds of specifically women's rituals or practices or visitations. Um, that already existed. So they want women in mosques, but not unconditionally. They want them there on their terms, which, you know, which, you know, like I don't want to make normative statements on behalf of Muslims. You know, there may be a sense in which they're theologically right um, by certain criteria, but in any case, you know, there are two edges to their interest in women's presence in mosques. And they're also interested in women's presence in mosques being used um, specifically as sort of a medium for the delivery of messages about proper femininity and domesticity. So like the theme of domesticity, the theme of, you know, sort of one of the reasons you would go to the mosque would be to hear appropriate religious messages about how to be a good wife and mother. That's a theme that, you know, sort of suddenly rises to huge prominence. And conversely, it's the idea of domesticity <coughs> that becomes sort of uh, in competition with or sometimes instead of the theme of fitna and, and you know, sort of s- seductiveness. Um, the idea that women's proper place is in the home and that they have domestic duties that may militate against their presence in the mosque um, is one that also really rises to prominence. Um, so that whole theme uh, is, is, is quite new and striking. It's not that it never comes up. Okay, so, you know, like you can go back uh, uh, and, you know, to whatever, the 12th century and someone like Al-Khassani uh, in the Hanafi school, which technically doesn't believe that women have to do house, housework or that wives do as part of the marital bargain, uh, we'll say, oh, well, you know, one of the reasons that women can't go to Friday prayers is because they're busy serving their husbands. But that's relatively marginal as, as a form of logic in, in the pre-modern period, and then it becomes huge uh, in the 20th century. Well, Mary, this really is an excellent book. Uh, it's written very clearly and uh, in an engaging style, so uh, appreciate that. We, of course, didn't have time to go into everything, but we've really talked for a long time, so I don't want to take up much more of your time, but we would love to hear about what you're working on now, what publications you might have coming out in the future. Well, thanks. Um, uh, It may not surprise you to hear in light of what I just said in answer to the previous question that I'm currently working on, uh, I mean, in, in the research phase, so don't anticipate its appearance anytime soon, but uh, I'm currently working on research on domestic labor in um, pre-modern law. It, it's, it focuses on the period from the 11th to 14th century, uh, and I'm looking at housework uh, as a topic of legal discussion, which actually turns out to be vastly richer as, as, as a topic uh, in, in these texts than I had ever imagined. So uh, I hope that that too will turn out to be interesting. I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will. Well, thank you very much for your time. It was great talking to you. Thank you so much for inviting me. That was my conversation with Marion Katz about her great new book, Women in the Mosque, A History of Legal Thought and Social Practice, published with Columbia University Press in 2014. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.